Alrighty, well, howdy, everyone. It's good to be with you all again this weekend uh, as we're in our Distracted Sermon series. And I'm just going to go ahead and dive right on in tonight with a story about my little two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Bethany. You may notice the theme. I love talking about Bethany. Uh, I affectionately call her Little Bops. It's one of the nicknames I've called her since she first started saying her name. And uh, Little Bops is probably the most fun when she first wakes up in the morning. So I was really excited to get a chance to, to spend a few minutes with her only a couple of weekends ago on Memorial Day Monday when I heard her awake. And so I, I ran in there to sit down with her and she's got the little, you know, the, the curly blonde hair is sticking up all over the place from the night before. And she's just, just all happy and excited, a little ray of sunshine. And uh, I was especially excited on this morning because I got to deliver the news that we were going to be heading off to the Memorial Day Parade in downtown Naperville. Now, she'd been to parades before, but I'm not sure she would have remembered any of them. So I did my best to try to explain to her what the parade's about. So I said, a parade is when a whole bunch of people gather together and they walk right down the middle of the street. And there are going to be bands playing music. And there will be police cars with their sirens on, their lights and, and fire engines. And there will, be, there will be boys and there will be girls and people waving flags. And it's going to be so much fun. And as I'm sharing all these things to her, I saw her kind of, her, her attention kind of drifted up into the corner. She was like thinking, she was like picturing it, you know, like trying to just visualize it, put it all together. And as she was doing that, I finally said, and the best part is that sometimes they throw candy at you. And all of a sudden, her eyes went, and her little blue eyes locked right with mine, like to say, don't joke, Daddy. Don't joke about candy. Don't do it. And I was like, honey, there will be candy that they're going to throw at you. And so we went off to, to kind of get ready to go to the parade, got some food in our bellies, and uh, Mommy and Gabe went with us. And we headed over to the parade, and uh, when we got there, we found a great spot about three-quarters of the way through the parade route and uh, set up shop there. And as everybody started marching down and coming towards us, I was holding her in my arms, and for anybody who went to that parade there and knows what the parades are like around here, uh, we had, uh, you know, the flag comes first, the American flag, and then behind that, Mayor Prater was in his Jeep, uh, his little a military Jeep driving through, and then we had a, a bunch of different people, a bunch of veterans in their cool cars, old cars and new cars. And the whole time I'm holding Bethany, even through the bands and through all the different Boy Scout and Girl Scout, Scout troops, and she is just like sitting there right in my arms and just she's kind of curled up with a little scowl on her face. And I'm like, Bob's, I thought, you, I thought you'd like the parade. Are, are, you, are you afraid? Thinking that, like, oh, it's just too much. Maybe it's just too much. Are you afraid? And she said, no. And for the record, Bethany is shameless about what she's afraid of. I mean, grass, okay? And she'll say, she'll say she's afraid of touching the grass, and she'll be all scared. So she would have told me if she was afraid, but she wasn't. She just had this scowl on her face. And I didn't know, know what it was. And so about 30 minutes into the parade, literally, she's still there, just kind of curled up and just kind of not doing much. And that's when it, it hit me. No candy had yet come. She wasn't scared. She was focused. She, she was like honed in, in the zone, waiting, candy's coming, candy's coming. I'm going to grab my candy. is right. It's any moment. And as I was, I was there with her, uh, we saw that the parade continue to come, and no candy, and no candy, and no candy. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? I promised this kid candy. I mean, a parade without candy? A parade without candy is like a parade without candy. You know what I mean? There's, there's no equivalent. There, there's, there's nothing you can apply that to. And so I was thinking, there's got to be candy in this parade. And as we're sitting there, becoming more and more disappointed as the moments go by, 
I, I see the, the parade kind of turn the corner down at the end and starts coming towards us. A couple hundred yards away, there's a group walking towards, I think it's a Girl Scout troop or something, and there's one little girl right up along the curb where, where she's going to be near us, and she's got, clutching in her hands, this brown, giant brown paper bag, okay? And she's holding it close to herself. And um, now I'm not sure if it was the twinkle in her eye or the glimmer in her smile or maybe the little swagger she had going on or something, but that little maybe 12-year-old girl, that was candy in that bag. That was candy, and I knew it. And now, now, Bethany and I have this innate ability, and uh, most other people don't have it, so you might not understand it, but um, we have this ability to sense sweetie goods uh, anywhere in the vicinity. We know when they're around. And um, there had still not been any thrown, and so I'm like, okay, we need to get some good sweets coming here. I see this girl coming. We know it's coming. I know Bethany knows it too. It's a spiritual gift, I think. I call it, it's, it's good. Confection detection, Okay. It's in 2 Corinthians, uh, no, 3 Corinthians, rather. Um, you know, Paul's letter to the Oompa Loompas. And um, as this girl comes closer and closer, I'm watching her pass by hordes of little kids sitting on, on the curb. Like just 50 yards, 100 yards, 150 yards. She hasn't passed on any, nothing. Her hand hasn't even reached in that little bag as she's clutching to her side. And I'm thinking, oh no, we've got a candy hoarder. You know, the one that's supposed to throw the candy, but she saves it to the end of the parade so she can have it herself. And she starts marching in front, and I'm getting appalled. Like, we got to do something here. Something has to happen. I'm praying to God inside, not knowing what to do. Should I attack her? Is it worthy? I think it is, but should I do it? I'm holding Bethany. I know she's so disappointed. She's got to know what's going on. And I kid you not, as surely as I'm standing right here, when she got within six feet in front of me, the bottom of the bag opened up, and all the candy fell out. I am not kidding. There's a spirit of God in that little girl I was holding or something like all the candy fell. And you imagine the little kids now all diving. They're going and I see hair flying. And uh, sure enough, a little dum-dum skitters out. Mima grabs it, hands it to Bethany. So she gets her little purple dum-dum that she got from the parade to take home that day. Done. What more do you need? What more do you need? Now, now here's the deal. Bethany missed out on the fun of the whole parade because she was focused on that one little piece of candy that would eventually come. I mean, she didn't, she seriously, she didn't see the fun, the bands. She would have loved like the flags and all that kind of stuff. She would have thought it was great, but she was so thinking about the candy, that's the only thing she wanted, that she missed out on all the rest. Now, as adults, we have the same issues, don't we? We like stuff. We pick your thing. We have it and we like it. Can, can you think right now of, of something that, that, that distracts you, some stuff that you might like to focus on sometimes? Stuff can distract us. And it can be anything. It can be, it can be a, a cell phone, perhaps, when you're in a meeting or maybe in church. And you're just minding your own business, doing your thing, and you're supposed to be focusing in on the message, taking notes and copiously listening to everything, and something distracts you. And it takes it away from what you're supposed to be looking at in that moment because something is making noise when the preacher is preaching. And it happens. And it's a distraction, right? Preacher magic. You might not know how that works. Now, here's the deal. We all have those things that steal our focus from what we should be focusing on, right? And spiritually speaking, we have those things that take our focus off of God. If you were here with us last weekend, you may remember that as we talked about distractions, we kind of brought up a a definition to go by. And the definition we're using for distractions is anything that steals our focus from God. That's a spiritual distraction, If it's out there and it can take our attention from what we should be focusing on, God, that's a spiritual distraction for us. Now, Jesus talked a lot about distractions. In fact, he warned and cautioned against them all the time. And I want to take you to one of those places right now. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up. 
I'm going to go to Mark chapter 4 here. So if you want to open your Bibles to there, I've got the red Bible here. If you're holding one of these, it's page 763. And Jesus is going to tell a story, which is what he loves to do. Jesus told parables and stories. I love telling parables and stories for that reason. And he's going to be helpful in giving us some profound insight into the distractions in our lives. Okay? I'm going to pick this up in verse 3 of Mark chapter 4. Read it out loud to you. Listen. A farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The plant sprang up quickly, but it soon wilted beneath the hot sun and died because the roots had no nourishment in the shallow soil. Other seed fell among thorns that shot up and choked out the tender blades so that it produced no grain. Still other seed fell on fertile soil and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, anyone who is willing to hear should listen and understand. Now Jesus used stories all the time. And not just random stories. He would try to associate them with the group he was with. So he used a story about farming because he knew that most of the people he was talking with would have some reference point for farming. They would know seed goes out. Okay, let's see how that works. Yeah, sometimes lands in the the, the field, or the, the path, sometimes in the rocky soil. We get it. That's how it works. But he wanted them to understand a bigger message, a bigger point. And as commonly happened, his disciples eventually came to him and were like, hey, that was a good story. But uh, Judas wasn't really listening. So if you could just tell him what it meant, that'd be great. And so Jesus goes to explain to his disciples what that story actually meant, spiritually speaking. And so this is what he says, starting in verse 14, giving the explanation of that story. The farmer I talked about is the one who brings God's message to others. The seed that fell on the hard path represents those who hear the message, but then Satan comes at once and takes it away from them. The rocky soil represents those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But like young plants in such soil, their roots don't go very deep. At first they get along fine, but they wilt as soon as they have problems or are persecuted because they believe the word. The thorny ground represents those who hear and accept the good news. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the cares of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for nice things, so no crop is produced." But the good soil represents those who hear and accept God's message and produced a huge harvest, 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. So here's the deal. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's using the seed as an example, right? And he explains it pretty clearly. He goes, there's going to be a bunch of different people, different groupings of people when it comes to the way they deal with the good news. And the way that they deal with the good news of Christ. And so The seed goes out and there's a bunch of different. The one that he wants for us to be is that fourth grouping, right? Where he says that, hey, some of that seed falls on good soil and it takes root. It grows down deep. And in growing down deep, it can grow up then strong and healthy and it can produce a crop not only in itself, but it can reproduce and have 30, 60, 100 times even more plants can come from that good harvest, that good crop. That's what he wants us to be. But he also gives an example of three different types of things that happen to people when they hear the good news that keep them from having a harvest, from having a good fruit. And this is, this is the first one. He uses the example of those who refuse to believe. The first example is those who will not believe. Now remember, that was the seeds that fell on the hard path. And they got to the hard path and the birds came up and ate it. Jesus says, that wasn't the bird. Satan comes and he takes his lie and he presents his lie like he does to the whole rest of the world as Jesus presents his truth. And the people look at it. They see, they see the truth and they see a lie and they have to decide and then they go with the lie. Those people refuse to believe the truth. They never even took root. 
The seeds never got off the, the hard ground. They just, they landed and they got swept right up in the lies, the deceit of Satan. That's what happens with that first group. The second group of people are not those who, who have trouble believing. Maybe they believe, but they won't commit. So the first group is those who won't believe. The second group is those who won't commit. Remember, that was the seed that fell on the rocky soil. And when it hit the rocky soil, it grabbed onto the little bit of soil that was there and it sprang up really quickly. It looked it was, everything was going great. Came right up. But then as the roots grow down a little deeper, in order for it to grow up a little larger, it hit the bedrock and hitting the rock, it hit something hard and then it withered out. It said, nope, can't go any farther. And he says that that's like the people who believe and they say, okay, and they're in and they start to sprout. It looks like things are going well, but then they hit some hard times. He says specifically persecution. Hardships will come. And when they come, it's something difficult and they can't push through. And because they didn't commit for better or worse, they don't weather through it. You see, the Bible, Jesus refers to this, Paul refers, most of the New Testament will refer to the collective body of believers as the bride of Christ. And now, this group of people are okay with thinking of themselves, okay, I'll be the bride of Christ as long as I can have a prenup. All right? So as long as you understand that I'm not really in it for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and health, till death do us part. I'm only in for the good stuff. If something bad happens, I'm out. I'm out. Gone. And not a lot of people would say that out loud. But because they never committed fully and said, I am in no matter what you give me. I'm in no matter what comes to me. Even if persecution comes, I'm in. And that group, they, they won't commit. So they won't, won't believe and those who won't commit. And then the next group comes along. The next group of people, Jesus describes as the seed that goes down and it lands among the thorns. It lands on the thorny soil, right? And so the, it takes root because they believe. It begins to grow and it pushes past some of the hardships because there was committing, kind of some committing going on there. They, they said, okay, I'm in. Um, but then what happened? They got distracted. The thorns of the life came up and began to choke and squeeze the life out of them. And they grew and they did survive and they made it. But they were unproductive and unfruitful. The reason was because they got distracted. Something else got in there. And that's where we're going to camp and spend our time this weekend. Because as a church, this is the area that I feel like God is pointing us to go towards. We've all spent time with people who just say, I don't believe that whole thing at all. I don't believe anything about God or Jesus. I don't believe anything about the Bible. Not in that stuff. Okay, they don't believe. That's where they're standing. Others will say, well, I believe I'm just not really willing to go all the way there yet. You're kind of crazy religious folk. I believe that it's true. Maybe someday I'll get there. Great. I'm focusing on the people who say, I believe, and I'm even willing to commit. Because something else gets out there. Those distractions, the clutter in our temple. And that's what happens to us. Now, we thank the Lord that Jesus, as he's talking here, he makes it really clear. There's three examples of some distractions. Because it's like, okay, I don't want to be distracted. don't want to be one of those who just grows up and gets choked out and no production come for me at all. I don't get to make disciples, don't get to participate in God's work. So what, what are we to do? Jesus says, listen, there's, there's really three examples. Let me give you three examples of ways people get distracted. And in verse 19, it says this, that those three distractions are the care of this, cares of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for nice things. Those three things, that's what Jesus brings up. And so let's walk through those real quick. Let's start with the cares of this world. The cares of this world quite literally are worries. In fact, some of your Bible translations might even use the word worry instead of cares because that's probably actually a better uh, rendering of that. Worries. Not just the cares, but the worries of this world. Jesus spoke about worry many times. In fact, one of the times I want to bring up to you right now is in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read a, read a little bit about what Jesus says about worry. 
He says this starting in verse 25. So I tell you, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food, drink, and clothes. Doesn't life consist of more than food and clothing? Look at the birds. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than they are. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? How about that question? Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? Recently uh, on the internet, fount of all knowledge, I I found this little quip. It was pretty funny. It said, um, statistically speaking, worrying works. Because 95% of the things that you worry about never happen. Well, that sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? You know, for a believer, it is really silly. Because God loves the birds, and he will take care of them. He's going to take care of you, the same you for whom he sent his son to die. He continues on, And why worry about your clothes? Now, if you're a man, and you've ever had to sit on the foot of the bed while your wife is getting a bunch of clothes out of the closet and trying to decide what to wear and she can't figure it out, you have a verse now, okay? <laughs> do not worry about your clothes. I do not, I, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen if you say that, but it is in the Bible, so preach it, brothers, preach it. And why worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies and see how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory, or my wife in all of her beauty, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? You have so little faith. Here's the thing. You show me where you worry the most, and I will show you where you trust God the least. Isn't that kind of heavy? Because the place that you worry the most is the place that you trust God the least. Let me play that out for a second. Imagine for a second the thing that you worry about the most, whatever it is, try to hold on to it for a second because that thing, do you believe that God is not powerful enough to do anything about it? Do you believe that God doesn't know about that worry that you have? Maybe, maybe more importantly, do you believe that God does even care about that worry? I'll give you a verse. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cast all of your troubles upon him because he cares for you. God wants your worry. I know there's a significant number of people who have a real struggle with worry. I mean, just a a real struggle. Like they try to just go through life and there's always something that's a little fear or something that pops in that makes you worry. And so let me speak to you. If you're right now thinking, man, I know that I struggle with the worry thing, let me speak to you for for a moment, okay? Because I think you really need to hear this as direct as I can be. I'll be kind of strong about this for you to try to help you with this. If you're worrying about things, you're refusing to trust God in those areas. And worry hurts twice. It hurts once because who likes to worry? Worry's not fun. All that anxiety and stress, that's not a good thing. That's, that's the first bad. The second bad of worry is that now it distracts you from Jesus. Worry does a, it's a double whammy. It hurts you twice. But listen very carefully. If you are a believer... If you have said, I've committed my life to Christ, I believe everything that he said, I am yours, God, I belong to you, I have surrendered my whole life to you. When you have done that before God, you have given him everything that is yours. That includes your worry. Let me say it like this. Those worries, they don't belong to you. When you gave them to God, you forfeited the right to worry. It's not just a bad thing to worry and a good thing to not. It is sin to worry and you need to offer it to God. 
You see, God loves you and he cares about your worry. And my concern is that as you walk out of here today, that you're going to have Satan telling you little things and trying to recall worries up. And what you need to say when he pulls a worry back up in your mind, something to focus on, you can say, I've already given that to God. And if you want to talk about that, deal with him. You've got to let go of the worries of this life. Jesus says that's a distraction that will choke the very life out of you and make it so you are unproductive in your Christian walk. Make it so no fruit will come. If you're worrying about things in your life, but you're praying for people to come to know Christ, this passage would make it seem as though if you're you're holding on to those worries, you can't hold those worries and those prayer requests for people going to Jesus. You can't hold on to those worries and, and hold Jesus in the other hand. You cannot serve both at the same time. You've got to release your worries. Now, some of you are worried about the fact you worry. You're like, oh, no, it's a sin. Listen, that's, that's even worse, right? So here's the deal. God knows that we worry, and he's patient with us in it, and it's his desire to help us with it. He cares about those worries, and he will help you with them. It's your job to lay them down, take them off your shoulder, lay them down on his feet every day. God, this is a worry I've got. I need to give it to you again. It's a worry again. I need to give it to you. Keep giving them to God. That's what he wants. The cares of this world are an example of a distraction. The next, next example that Jesus brings up is the lure of wealth. The lure of wealth. Now, anytime that you talk about money in church, wealth in church, um, I know that there's something that goes on in people's minds. A lot of red flags go off. I'll be really honest. This has just been my experience with people when you talk about money in church. Uh, A lot of like, oh, a little uneasiness and discomfort goes by. And the reason, it can be twofold. Number one, you just might be a greedy person. Really honest. If your God is money, whenever in church where we worship the one God, we talk about money, it gets a little uncomfortable. Be really honest. Some people, that's, that's their struggle. You worship money, all right? I'm here to tell you it's not going to save you, all right? But the, the higher majority, I think, of people are the other camp, okay? I said there's two. The other one is those who know history. And I know that churches and leaders of churches for centuries have manipulated the Word of God to distort the truth, to extort money, from innocent people. And I know that that's true. And I know that it's true. And so for some people, when we talk about wealth in church, it's like, oh my goodness, we can't talk about this. We got to keep it separate. No, we don't. Because Jesus talked about it a ton. But here's how we approach it. We approach it through the scripture. We allow you to read what it says. And we tell you what it is that Jesus was trying to get to every time he talked about money, which was a lot, by the way. And every time he brought it up, he was trying to get to one point. Your heart. Let me give you an example. Going back to Matthew chapter 6, that same passage he talked about worry, he also talks about money. How about that, huh? Starting in verse 19 of that same passage, don't store up treasures on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they'll be safe from thieves. And this is his point. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. Do you get it? It's never about the dollars. It was never about the coin. It was always about your heart. That's what Jesus is getting to. Jesus can't bat an eyelash and produce money galore. The God of the universe has infinite resources. He's not aching for my cash. What he wants is my heart. As a church, we'll always preach that faithfully. 
that when we get to the point where we want to be generous before God, it's because we love God and we see the joy and the blessing of being able to do it, but not because we're concerned for our salvation, we pour it out. You see, the lure of wealth can rear its ugly head in many different ways. And sometimes it can be something as sinister as in the church. Other times it's far more practical and we see it all the time. People just want more money. That people just want more money. It's the lure of wealth. Now, I love that it uses the example that calls it a lure. I think of fishing. You put that little fake worm uh, on that hook, right? You toss it in the water to try to catch something. Now, the deal is with that, that's not satisfying for that fish, all right? In fact, it's downright dangerous. You might be invited to dinner that night. You're not sitting in front of the plate, if you know what I mean. So here's the deal for those of you who who look at the the, the money and wealth and and think that you can just seek after it and, and go after it. Guys, Jesus makes a very, very strong case over and over and over again. Your heart and your dollars are connected. They really are. In fact, if you want to see what someone really cares about, just find out where they're spending a lot of their money. You'll see what happens. That's why people who, who love the Lord and have been devoted to him for so long, such a long time, they, they love giving generously to God and to others because they don't care about their money. Their money is God's. That's how they think of it. Ironically, those same people who are learning to become more like God also become more humble because they want to be more like him. And you never even know about the fact they give all that money away. That's awesome. But the lure of wealth can be an extraordinary distraction. Now, I should say that the lure of wealth is not saved and reserved only for the wealthy. In fact, I would say that the lure of wealth can be every bit as distracting for those who don't have wealth than for those who do. Arguably more. How many times have you been in a season of your life where you don't know how you're going to pay the next bill? Or somebody you know who is struggling to make ends meet on a daily basis, and doesn't the focus all of a sudden become about money so much then? Doesn't it happen? See how easy it can happen? It's not sinister like you just want to buy a yacht. Or something. Not that yachts are bad. Oh my goodness, I don't want to get emails about that. But the truth is, if you, if you, like, if you want to go out and buy some big extravagant thing, maybe then it's easy for someone to look. Ah, lure of wealth. Lure of wealth has got that guy right there. Hold on. No, it might be the guy who can barely make ends meet. And so that's all he can think about in a day. He didn't get there through sinister means, just desiring money. He just wants to pay the bills. Can't figure out how to do it. We have to be so cautious that we don't focus in on money, because when we focus on one thing, we're not focusing on other things. That means it's a distraction for us. The lure of wealth. It's not bad to have money. Just be careful there's not a hook in it, you know? The next thing that Jesus says is an example. Uh, he said that it cares this world, the lure of wealth, and the desire for nice things. The desire for nice things is not necessarily the rubies and gems and the, the crystal chandeliers and the lavish lifestyle. The desire for nice things can be something as simple and as deceptive as the desire for comfort. My wife and I, as we prepared to get ready to go to Utah, and we're kind of, we knew we had to sell the house, we had to get everything going and moving on out from that, and we had to transition from job and all the things that God was calling us to do, and it started feeling pretty good. Like, wow, we're just, we're offloading all these things that we've had that we've kind of felt attached to, and even the comforts in our life, that we, we had a wonderful little condo. We loved to just, just love having our little babies in there. It was just great for us, and very comfortable lifestyle. And we decided, Lord, we're going to go to Utah, so we're going to abandon all of our comforts. We're going to give all of it to you. We're just going to give all those comforts up. Now, before you think that this is a, is a story where I'm the hero, let me explain where this goes. We were downtown Chicago just a couple of weekends ago for uh, um, my sister-in-law's graduation. And uh, so we saw the city. We were in the city. And as we were driving out of the city, we were both talking, Laura and I, about, oh, wow, I'm so glad we don't live in the city. 
Man, the city, we just, this is so crowded. You can't find a place to park. You can't just let the kids go outside and get their thing. I can't run out to the street to grab my a newspaper and my boxers. Uh, all these crazy things that we can't have in the city, we would really love to be able to have. So we're so glad that we're aiming for the suburbs. And when we get to Salt Lake County, we're going to find this nice little place. And it's just going to kind of be away. And, and we're just in the car driving back home. And all of a sudden, I, I felt God just like strike me. I said, Rich, you haven't given up your comforts. You just traded old comforts for your new ones. And your desire is for your comfort. Is it really for me? Is it really for what I want for you? Rich, would you be willing to abandon all this stuff? Would you be willing to give up all of the things and say, God, I'll live in a cardboard box for you. You can take everything. And he struck me. That's been a challenging thought, and we've been praying through that and repenting through that, my wife and I, about God, we, we don't want to be held to anything. We don't want to have this normal that we hold to, because Christians have it. You know the American ideal, right? The, 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 the little house in the suburbs, each person has a car, two-car garage, and uh, you know, 2.3 kids, little puppy dog runs around, and just everything looks beautiful, and that's the American ideal, and sometimes Christians mock that, and they say, ah, oh, look at the world, that's what they want. Christians have the same thing. We just have the Christian version of it. The Christian version is when we have that little house in the suburbs, we have that dog and those couple smart kids who, who play in all the sports and do the best in the world and they, they're, they're awesome at all the things they try academically and they, they help out at the church and they go on mission trips on occasion and they, they, they do those programs. They always show up and sit in the same seats on Sunday morning. They show up on the weekends. They, they get into the church service. They give a little bit here and they, they be part of the serving opportunities and we have our own American Christian ideal of normal. What I want to challenge is are we willing to say forget the normal Forget it. I don't even care about normal because normal is a desire for nice things. Just something simple. It doesn't seem sinister because in itself, it's not. Man, imagine if we did that. Imagine with, as, as a people, we just said, forget normal. Forget it. Whatever your picture of normal is in your mind, whatever you can conjure up, write it down maybe and say, God, this is yours. I don't even care if I have it. If you give it to me, all right. If not, that's okay. I just want to be content in focusing on you. Don't let even normal be a distraction for me. That's the desire for nice things. You can become an idol. I praise the Lord that Jesus gives these passages to us and explains to us, hey, be careful. The last thing you want in your life is thorns wrapping around you and choking you out so that you can't produce fruit. That's your purpose. That's what you were made for. You know, my concern, as I expressed this, this last weekend uh, with the church, is not the distractions, those passive distractions that kind of float around, but the active focus points that are the wrong ones. In other words, my concern would be more that you would focus on the wrong thing than you would be distracted from the right things. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, our greatest focus, if it's wrong, becomes our greatest distraction you know, God talks about distractions in the Old Testament many times. He calls them idols. Because distractions are anything that steals your focus from God. But an idol is anything that steals your affection from God. And your focus and your affection are tied pretty closely, tight together. They will go together in the same stream of thought so quickly. And you'll find yourself being a worshiper of an idol. And here's the thing. Is there anything wrong with the actual physical idol itself? How about the things we brought up just tonight? The things that we talked about? Are those things wrong? Is wealth a bad thing? Our concerns, the fact that there are concerns. Are those things bad? How about the nice things? Are, are those bad? No, they're not bad. 
They're not bad unto themselves. Those things aren't the issue. You are. I am. The way that we deal with those things. In the Old Testament, God called them idols. And people used to literally walk outside of their little hut, go up to a tree, chop it down with their own hands and an axe. They would take it inside and they would carve it into a shape and they'd put that in the middle of their place and say, this is our God. We worship this. We bow down before it. We offer our lives to it. Every day we'll commit a couple of hours to it. The family will have meals around it. And we sit here now in the 21st century and we think at the apex of human progression, we look back at those primitive fools. How so foolish those ignorant barbarians are that they had a tree. A man made that tree. And look at the hours they're spending with it. Like it's not going to give them life. They think it's a God. They worship it. They devote their time, attention, affection towards it. But you and I both know we have plenty of those things in our life, don't we? The TV alone. The TV alone sucks up on average in an American household 612 hours a year. That's 25 days in the average American home. 25 days of the year from beginning to end are spent on TV average average Americans. And we laugh at those pitiful ancients so ignorant they didn't understand. But do we? We gather our family around, we devote ourselves to the stuff. Guys, here's the big idea. It's not bad to have stuff, but it's bad when your stuff has you. Our focus is to be on one thing. One thing. That's God and God alone. That our temple would remain uncluttered. We'd focus and devote ourselves wholeheartedly to him. We would not allow anything to get in that would keep us from focusing on him. And if God needs to destroy all of our things because they're becoming idols, let it be. Did you ever notice that in the Old Testament, any time that God referred to idols, he did not say, try to spend less time with it. Try to just devote a little less of your heart to the idols you do have and you keep in your homes. How did God want us to deal with the idols? destroy them. There is no place in the life of a believer for the idols that suck the attention and the affection that rightly belongs to God. Today we talk about stuff. We talk about the things and getting rid of them in our lives. My hope is that as we continue to move through these weekends, something will, something will click. The Holy Spirit will do work that I cannot do and shoot out into you and into your hearts and convict you of something and help you to offer that idol back up to God to remove it from your heart and your life, whether it be normal, comfort, or if it's a thing that you've devoted yourself to, that you would abandon it. And I'll tell you right now, if you think that that's hard to do with a thing, it gets way harder in the next few weeks of the stuff we're going to talk about. Things are the easy stuff to get rid of. I want to right now go ahead and center ourselves before the Lord because as a, as a whole church, as the bride of Christ, we're about to participate in the Lord's Supper in a moment. And I just want to, I just want to pray. I just want to pray right now that wherever you are, you'll be able just to pause. We take just a moment and search the temple of our hearts and say, Jesus, walk through. Make sure there's nothing in there that shouldn't be in there. Lord, help us. If there's an idol that I'm focusing on, get rid of it. So I'd ask that every eye is closed, that every head is bowed. You just hear these words for a moment. And if God is talking to you, shut my voice out, please. Listen to his voice instead. But God, I know that I personally, Rich, I have offered myself to idols so many times. I've allowed things into my heart that have taken your place. And I repent of those things. 
And I pray that as a church body that we would be able to do the same, that we would never be the bride who has multiple suitors. God, let us be devoted to you and to you alone. Forgive us if there's anything that's taken your place in our hearts. Lord, as we are about to go to this table that represents the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, as the ushers come down and pass these out to the people, I pray that our hearts would be able to just separate from reality for a moment, step back and look from the outside looking in and say, is there anything in there that needs to go? Help us remove it. Help us commit to removing it even before we take these elements in this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name.